what's going on, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Mad Nucleus Podcast. And I'm your host. For those that do know and those that don't know, I'm Justin Felton, and thank you all once again for listening to this episode. Today is the 1st of October. October begins, you know what that means, right? Horror movies, horror, suspense thrillers, psychological thrillers, what have you. And, you know, since it is October 1st, and since October is here upon us, I want to make one thing clear why I'm making this episode today is because fans of original or some of the original horror franchises have cause for rejoice today or this month, not just today, but this month. And I'm going to start with uh, what comes out tomorrow is the premiere of the television series of Interview with a Vampire. Y'all remember that movie from the 90s with Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Kristen Dunst, and several others. Also, it is a adaptation from the late Anne Rice's novel, the late great Anne Rice, rest in peace. And uh, that premieres tomorrow on AMC. You know, also this week that will be premiering um, October 5th, which is uh, Wednesday on Sci-Fi and USA is season two of Chucky from the famed Child's Play movies. Yep. You know, Chucky, Brad Dourif, the voice of Chucky, he's back. His crazy girlfriend and some of the other characters. And it'll be interesting to see if any of the survivors return to this series for unfinished business. Much like Andy Barkley did and his uh, foster sister Kyle did. Uh, also premiering this week on Hulu is the rebooted, uh, a rebooted version of Hellraiser. This time they have a female Cenobite as the new pinhead. And I'm excited to see that as well. That's going to be crazy. That that comes out Friday on Hulu. So check that out. And who knows, that might even get a theatrical version, a theatrical release. But I doubt that uh, very seriously because the last uh, four movies did not get released on theaters at all. They were straight to DVD and... <laughs> They said we're not going to chance it. So, you know, whatever streaming service picks it up, that's what we're going to go with. And Hulu picked it up, much like Hulu picked up Prey. And speaking of Hulu, I think they're on a roll with these um, rebooted movies as of late with, you know, the latest Predator movie, Prey. And just judging by the reviews, uh, this new... Um, Hellraiser seems to be everything. Some are even saying it's better than the original, the best since the original, the best since part two. I'll take any of that because Hellraiser 1 and 2 was it. And if it is better than any of them, I'll take that. That's that's even better. But, you know, nobody's ever going to, you know, take the originals or take reboots over the originals. And, you know, the new pinhead played by Jamie Clayton. Uh, she's receiving rave reviews and praise. And of course, people are not going to choose Doug Bradley uh, or are not going to choose her over Doug Bradley. So there you have it. But um, I also want to talk about um, 
other horror icons. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Just before I get to that, uh, also on October fourteenth in theaters and same day streaming on pre uh, Peacock, the last installment of the Halloween franchise, or you know, until they reboot it again. It's coming out October 14th on Peacock and in theaters. So I know a lot of people are excited for that as well. I myself did not care for the last two, but I will be watching just out of curiosity, but I'm not going to the movies to watch it. I will be watching it on a pirate site <laughs> because once they hit streaming, they're fair game on pirate sites. So if you don't have certain streaming platforms, like I said in a previous podcast, they're fair game on streaming. But it'll be interesting to see if Michael Myers dies, Laurie Strode dies, what have you. And that's that for that one. Okay. I want to dive into these horror icons that, you know, that everybody dresses as every Halloween or every costume party. You always find Jason. You always find Michael Myers. You always find Freddy Krueger. You always find Chucky. You always find Leatherface. You'll find the Ghostface Killer. You will find uh, Pinhead from time to time, and maybe a Cenobites. But that would be the steal of the show because they're hard to dress. Like you know, you can copy their design, get the cosplayers, whatever. Um, you might find the tall man and candy man as well. And I want to talk about all of these horror icons. Uh, maybe Reagan from Exorcist or Pazazu. Or, you know, do we want to dive into that? Do we want to really dive into that? I want to talk about, you know, first we should start with Reagan, a.k.a. Pazazu. Let me get into that. Let me pull this up right quick. Reagan McNeil, played by Linda Blair. All right. She was in The Exorcist and The Exorcist 2. And she had an alias called Angela Rance. Maybe, wasn't she? I think she changed her name. Because of public scrutiny. But okay, let's go through the character profile, the character biography. Reagan McNeil is a 12-year-old girl and the daughter of actress Chris McNeil, played by actress Ellen Burstyn. Reagan is caught between her mother's grueling working schedule and the fact that her parents are in the process of an acrimonious divorce. Her father is in Europe and is not seen in the movie. Nope, not at all. Not even mentioned in the movie, matter of fact. She is named for the character... Of the same name in William Shakespeare's King Lear. She is described as shy, even diffident, and it is not within her nature to behave aggressively. She is devoted to her mother, making clay animals as gifts for her and leaving a rose at her place at the kitchen table each morning. Chris is determined to be a good mother, spending all of her off days with her. Because she is an atheist, she does not teach Reagan about religion. What religious knowledge Reagan has has comes without Chris's approval from Sharon, Chris's secretary, and in general in nature. Even though Chris knows Reagan very well, it takes her some time to realize that Reagan's bizarre changes are not neurological. <laughs> of course. You know, you don't just pop up out of the blue and just act the way she was acting in that movie. 
As soon as she accepts the idea of possession, she consults Father Karras and begs him to evaluate Reagan for an exorcism. While Karras is initially skeptical, he slowly becomes convinced of her possession and eventually calls for an exorcism. Karras and Father Marin perform an exorcism and succeed in exorcising the demon, albeit at the cost of their own lives. Reagan retains no memory of her possession. Shortly afterwards, Chris and Reagan decide to move. On the day of the move, Father Dwyer visits their home and upon seeing his clerical collar, Reagan embraces him, implying she has not totally lost her memory. In the sequel, Exorcist II, The Heretic, which takes place four years after the events in The Exorcist, Reagan is 16 years old, living in New York City and undergoing psychiatric therapy, claiming to remember nothing about her plight in Washington, D.C., while her psychiatrist believes her memories are only buried or repressed. As the story regresses, Reagan is revealed to have psychic healing powers, the reason why the demon attacked her previously. Really? Yeah, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of part two. I couldn't get through it all because it kind of was confusing, but maybe because I wasn't paying attention. But I'm going to have to take a look at part two. For The Exorcist 3, Coroloco Pictures had the idea of a grown-up Reagan who gives birth to possessed twins, but it was abandoned and the story was switched to Blady's novel, Legion, instead. Yeah, they made a movie of that one. John Carpenter was asked to direct Exorcist 3, but backed out when he realized William Peter Blady really wanted to direct himself. And because of create, creative differences, however, they remain friends. Reagan McNeil appears in the television series The Exorcist. As an adult, she changed her name to Angela Rance to escape the demons, but they find her again and attack her family, possessing her younger daughter, Casey. Angela Reagan makes a deal with Pazazu to allow herself to become repossessed in order to save Casey's life. While possessing her, Pazazu seizes the opportunity to murder her mother, Chris. Angela Reagan with the help of priest Thomas Ortega and Marcus King finds the strength to once again evict the demon from her body and soul, but he retaliates by breaking her back in punishment, rendering her wheelchair using, but still alive. Damn, that's crazy. In December, 2020, a reboot of the exorcist was announced to be in the works from bloom house productions in July 2021, a trilogy to direct sequels to the original film were confirmed to be in development with Ellen Burstyn reprising her role as Chris McNeil. But Linda Blair took to Twitter saying she was not she has not had she has not been in contact as of yet to reprise her role as Reagan McNeil. As of now, there has not been any discussions about me participating in reprising my role. I wish all those involved the best and I appreciate the loyalty and passion the fans have for the exorcist and my character. I think in due time, because I the, the news broke about maybe about two months ago that Ellen Bernstein was coming back and I was like, why? She's still going at it. She still can do it. And I said, they got to get in contact with Linda Blair. They have to get in contact well, a lot of those people are dead, but they have to get in contact with uh, seeing if Kitty Wynn can come back because she's still alive. But, you know, 
it, it, it don't feel like the exorcist without her in it, man. So, yeah. And let's go through her pop culture status. Okay. This is very short. In the Supernatural Season 2 episode, The Usual Suspects, Linda Blair guest stars as a police detective helping them against an apparent vengeful spirit. At the end of the episode, Dean Winchester comments that Linda's character looks familiar as he suddenly craves pea soup. <laughs> That's what she was, uh, that was the prop. She was throwing up pea soup in the movie. <laughs> That's crazy. In the popular Flash game, The Maze, also known as The Scary Maze Game by developer Jeremy Winteroud, an image of Reagan's possessed face is used as a screamer in the final level. In the 2001 comedy horror film, Scary Movie 2, Reagan and Pazazu's character are parody in the prologue of the film in a satirical Exorcism done by a parody of Father Karras and Father Marin. Yep, that's that for Reagan McNeil. Crazy. All right, let's go to... Should we do Norman Bates? All right, let's do Norman Bates. Because I want to do all of these horror icons that I can think of. And, you know, I'm going to break them down in the segment. So I'm going to do Norman Bates, you know. I should have did this one first. All right. Let's see what we got on Norman Bates. Let's look at his character profile. Let's see what we got here. Character overview. Both the 1959 novel and his 1960 film adaptation explains that Norman suffered from severe emotional abuse as a child at the hands of his mother, Norma, who preached to him that sexual intercourse was sinful that all women except herself were whores. The novel also suggests that their relationship may have been incestuous. Hmm. This is going to get interesting because I can remember the last Psycho movie that they that Anthony Perkins made before he died. You know, it delved into his childhood, his boyhood. You got to see that one. That was pretty good. It was a made-for-TV version. It was a made-for-TV movie, but, you know, it could have very well went theatrical, but they decided not to do that. After Norman's father died, Norman and his mother lived alone together, as if there was no one else in the world, until Norman was a teenager when his mother met Joe Constantine, Chet Rudolph, in Psycho for the Beginning, takes him back to the origins, and planned to marry. Constantine eventually convinced Norma to open a motel, Driven over the edge with jealousy, Norman murdered both of them with strychnine. <laughs> After committing the murders, Norman forged his mother's suicide note to make it look like she had killed Constantine and then herself. After a brief hospitalization for shock, he developed a split personality, assuming his mother's personality to repress his awareness for her death and thus escaped the guilt of murdering her. He inherited his mother's house where he kept her corpse in the fruit cellar and the motel in the fictional small town of Fairville, Fairville California. Norman's mother personality is a cruel and possessive as the real Norma had been in life, frequently berating him and forbidding him to have a life outside of her. As mother, 
He dresses in Norma's clothes and talks to himself in her voice. And he also speaks to her corpse as if it was alive. It or it is alive. Mother also kills women whom Norman feels attracted to and anyone else who threatens the illusion of her existence. Norman passes out when mother takes control after mother commits a murder. Norman awakens and destroys the evidence, convinced that she alone is responsible for the crime. Blot sums up Norman's multiple personalities in his stylistic form of puns. Norman, a child needing his mother. Norma, a controller, controlling mean-spirited parent figure. And Normal, a functioning adult who goes through the emotions of day-to-day -day life. Yep, Norman Bates is always a realistic character because there are people in this world that deal with that. Yes, don't be naive and don't be ignorant. There are people in this world like that. Characterization. Okay. The character Norman Bates in Psycho was loosely based on two people. First was the real-life murderer Ed Gain, about whom Blot later wrote a fictionalized account, The Shambles of Ed Gain, in 1962. The story can be found in Crimes and Punishment, The Lost Block, Volume 3. Second, it has been indicated by several people, including Noelle Carter, wife of Lynn Carter, and Chris Steinbrenner, as well as allegedly by Block himself, that Norman Bates was partly based on Calvin Black, Calvin Beck, publisher of The Castle of Frankenstein. Hmm. The characterizations of Norman Bates in the novel and the movie differ in some key areas. In the novel, Norman is in his mid to late 40s, short, overweight, and homely. In the movie, he is in his mid-20s, tall, slender, and handsome. Reportedly, and working in the film, Hitchcock decided that he wanted audiences to be able to sympathize with Norman and genuinely like the character. So he made him more of a boy next door. In the novel, Norman becomes mother after getting drunk and passing out. In the movie, he remains sober before switching personalities. In the, no in the novel, Norman is well read in occult and esoteric authors such as P.D. Ospinsky and Aleister Crowley. He is aware that Mother disapproves of these authors as being against religion. Hmm. <laughs> All right. I mean, there's no pop cultural section for him on Wikipedia, but uh, he's been mentioned in hip hop songs and, you know, he's been mentioned in, uh, you know, been used in commercials and stuff like that. I remember seeing it over time. You know, there was a crackers commercial or a cookie commercial or a sandwich commercial where they used the Norman Bates. You know, mother says, this is good. Eat that. And it, it was it was some commercial. And I thought it was pretty, pretty dope, though. But I don't know, man. Yeah, man. Norman Bates. You got to do Norman Bates. All right. Next up, we will do. Should we do Jaws? Is Jaws considered horror or terror? I just want to know how, what y'all consider Jaws. Do y'all consider horror or is that terror? I mean, great white sharks 
attacking people on beaches is uncommon. It's happened before, but it's uncommon. They don't just go and attack people in shallow water on beaches. But they said, we're going to, you know, give somebody something to be scared about. You know, the next time they go to a beach and they feel something in the water, people jumping out of the water, I'm pretty sure, you know, the effects was there. But let's talk about the Jaws themes. Let's talk about the themes, because I think that's where I'm getting at. Herman Melville's Moby Dick is the most notable artistic antecedent to Jaws. The character of Quint strongly resembles Captain Ahab, the obsessed captain of the Pequod who devotes his life hunting a sperm whale. Quint's monologue reveals a similar obsession with sharks. Even his boat, the Orca, is named after the only natural enemy of the white shark. In the novel and original screenplay, Quint dies after being dragged under the ocean by a harpoon tied to his leg, similar to the death of Ahab in Melville's novel. A direct reference to these similarities may be found in Spielberg's draft of the screenplay, which introduces Quint watching the film version of Moby Dick. His continuous laughter prompts other audiences, other audience members to get up and leave the theater. However, the scene from Moby Dick could not be licensed from the film star Gregory Peck, its copyright holder. Screenwriter Carl Gottlieb also drew comparisons to Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man and the Sea. Jaws is a titanic struggle like Melville or Hemingway. The underwater scenes shot from the shark's point of view have been compared with passages in two 1950s horror films, Creature from the Black Lagoon and The Monster That Challenged the World. Gottlieb named two science fiction productions from the same era, as influences on how the shark was depicted or not. The Thing from Another World, which Gottlieb described as a great horror film where you only see the monster in the last reel, and it came from outer space where the suspense was built up because the creature was always off camera. Those precedents helped Spielberg and Gottlieb to concentrate on showing the effects of the shark rather than the shark itself. Scholars such as Thomas Schatz have described how Jaws melds various genres while essentially being in action and film and a film thriller. Most is taken from horror with the core of a nature-based monster movie while adding elements of a slasher film. The second half is both a buddy film and the interaction between the crew of the orca and a supernatural horror based on the shark's depiction of a nearly satanic menace. Ian Freer describes Jaws as an aquatic monster movie, citing the influence of earlier monster movies such as King Kong and Godzilla. Charles Derry in 1977 also compared Jaws to Godzilla, and Spielberg cited Godzilla, King of the Monsters, 1956 as a formative influence growing up due to the masterful way in which it made you believe it was really happening. 
Critics such as Neil Senior have described similarities to Henrik Ibsen's play in Enemy of the People. Gottlieb himself said that he and Spielberg referred to Jaws as Moby Dick meets Enemy of the People. The Ibsen work features a doctor who discovers that a seaside town's medicinal hot springs, a major tourist attraction and revenue source are contaminated. When the doctor attempts to convince the townspeople of the danger, he loses his job and is shunned. The plot line is paralleled in Jaws's by Brody's conflict with Mayor Vaughn, who refuses to acknowledge the presence of a shark that may dissuade summer beachgoers from coming to coming to Amity. Brody is vindicated when more sharks attack occur at the crowded beach in broad daylight. Senior calls the film a deft combination of Watergate and Ibsen's play. Right. Yeah, it's like, yeah, you find out the hallway type of scenario. That's what that was. And that's what builds the drama in films like that and make for horror icons and stuff like that. Scholarly criticism. Should I go through that? Oh, man, that's a long section because I want to get to the next one. Yes, audience emotional response. We're going to skip the scholarly criticism. Okay, while in theaters, the film was said to have caused a single case of cinematic neurosis in a 17-year-old female viewer. Cinematic neurosis is a condition in which viewers exhibit mental health disturbances or a worsening of existing mental health disturbances after viewing a film. The symptoms first presented as a sleep disturbance and anxiety, but one day later, the patient was screaming sharks, sharks, and experiencing convulsions. Yeah. That's what I was talking about. All that kind of trauma. Should I screw? Okay, let me finish the rest. It's very short. This case study caused the film to become notable and in the medical community alongside the exorcist for causing stress reactions in the first in its viewers and was later used in a study by Brian R. Johnson to test how susceptible audience were in a cinematic stress inducers. Two cinematic stress inducers. His study found that stress could be induced by cinema in segments of the general population and Jaws specifically caused stress reactions in its viewers. While Johnson could not find an exact cause for the stress response in viewers, whether it be the suspense, the gore, or the music production, a 1986 study by G. Sparks found that particularly violent films, including Jaws, tended to cause the most intense reactions in reviewers. I mean, that's the thing. You go to the beach. You're there to have a good time. Put your suntan lotion on. Set up your, your little umbrella, your cooler, whatever. You go in that water. You have a good time. Let the waves do its thing, you know. And then... To, you know, much to your, you know, your unbeknownst to it, that a shark is nearby in shallow waters. And it has a thing for flesh and blood. A lot of people stop going to the beach for years and years, if, uh, if not ever. Think about that. So I believe it when they, they did those studies, because 
you know, you know, people that say, man, when I saw Jaws, I was really scared to even get into the bathtub. <laughs> That's crazy. You know, play on the general public's emotions. That's 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 what it's about, right? All right. Next up, I want to do Michael Myers and we're going to uh, conclude this particular segment and go to the next one. Next set of uh, icons. Yep. Michael Myers. Let's see what, what they got for his character uh, profile. Appearances. Nope. We want concept and creation. Okay. Characterization. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I realized what was living behind this boy's, that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Dr. Sam Loomis's description of a young Michael Myers was inspired by John Carpenter's experience with a real-life mental patient. Michael Myers was the real-life name of a head of the head of the now-dissolved British company Miracle Films. Myers, after meeting producer Erwin Yablins, attributed distributed uh, John Carpenter's previous film, Assault on Precinct 13, in England in 1977. His name was chosen as a tribute to his success, to this success, I should say. A common characterization of Michael Myers is that he is pure evil. John Carpenter has described the character as almost a supernatural force, a force of nature, an evil force that that's loose, a force that is unkillable. Nicholas Rogers elaborates. Myers is depicted as a mythic, elusive boogeyman, one of the superhuman strength who cannot be killed by bullets, stab wounds, or fire. Carpenter's inspiration for the evil that Michael Myers would embody came when he was in college. While on a class trip at a mental institution in Kentucky, Carpenter visited the most serious mentally ill patients. Among those patients was a young boy around 12 to 13 years old. The boy gave this schizophrenic stare, this schizophrenic stare, a real evil stare, which Carpenter found unsettling, creepy, and completely insane. Carpenter's experience would inspire the characterization that Loomis would give of Michael to Sheriff Brackett in the original film. Deborah Hill has stated that the, st- the scene where Michael kills a German shepherd was done to illustrate how he is really evil and deadly. Yeah, man. That German shepherd didn't deserve to die. The ending scene of Michael being shot six times and then disappearing after falling off of the balcony was meant to make audiences' imaginations run wild. Carpenter tried to keep the audience guessing as to who Michael Myers really is. He is gone and everywhere at the same time. He is more than human. He may be supernatural, and no one knows how he got that way. To Carpenter, Keeping the audience guessing was better than explaining the way the character with he's cursed by some for Josh Hartnett, who portrayed John Tate in 
Halloween H2O. It's the abstract. It's easier for me to be afraid of it. You know, someone who just kind of appears and, you know, mimics stabbing noises and from psycho instead of an actual human you think can you can talk to. And no remorse. It's got no feelings. That's the most frightening, definitely. Yeah. It's like something in human form that doesn't have emotions. Richard Snickle, or Schickle, whatever his name is, film critic for a time, felt Michael was irrational and really angry about something. Having what Schickle said referred to as a kind of primitive, obsessive, obsessed intelligence, Schickle considered this the definition of a good monster by making the character appear less than human but having enough intelligence to be dangerous. Yeah. I mean, all these, these horror icons are not stupid. They're not, they're not created to be that stupid. They have methods to their madness and methods to the madness creates the genius in them. Why we love them so much. The Michael Myers, the Jasons, the Leatherfaces. Um, Dominic Othan Garrard attempted to have audiences relate to evil to Michael Myers' ill side. Garrard wanted Michael to appear more human, even vulnerable, with contradicting feelings inside him. He illustrated these feelings with a scene where Michael Myers removes his mask and shed a tear. Garrard explains again to humanize him, to give him a tear. If evil it or in this case, our boogeyman knows pain or love or demonstrate a feeling of regrets. He becomes even more scary if he pursues his malefic actions. He shows an evil determination beyond his feelings. Dr. Loomis tries to reach his emotional side several times in Halloween 5. He thinks he could cure Michael through his feelings. Daniel Ferrans, writer of The Curse of Michael Myers, describes the character as a sexual deviant. What? Nah. According to him, the way Michael Myers follows girls around and watches them contains a subsect of repressed sexuality. Well, I mean, um, there is some context to that. Ferrans theorized that as a child, Michael became fixated on the murder of his sister Judith for his own twisted reasons, felt the need to repeat that action over and over again, finding a sister-like figure in Laurie who excited him sexually. He also believes that by making Laurie's, Laurie Michael's literal sister, the sequels took away from the simplicity and relatability of the original Halloween. Nevertheless, when writing Curse, Ferenz was tasked with creating a mythology for Michael which defined his motives and why he could not be killed. He says he can't just be a man anymore. He's gone beyond that. He's mythical. He's supernatural. So it, I took it from that standpoint that there's something else driving him, a force that goes beyond that five senses that has infected this boy's soul and now is driving him. As the script developed, and more people became involved, Ferenz admits that the film went too far in explaining Michael Myers 
and that he himself was not completely satisfied with the finished product. Michael does not speak in the films. The first time audiences ever hear his voice is in 2007, Rob Zombie's reboot. Michael speaks as a child during the beginning of the film, but while in Smith's Grove, he stops talking completely. Rob Zombie originally planned to have the adult Michael speak to Lori in the film's finale, simply saying his childhood nickname for her, Boo. Zombie explained that this version was not used because he was afraid having the character talk at that point would demystify him too much. And because the act of Michael handing Lori the photograph of them together was enough. Yeah, you know, I didn't really watch Rob Zombie's reboots of him. I mean, I was at the time tired of rebooting everything. And I'm still tired of reboots, though. But at that time, reboots was just rampant at the time, man. Okay, man, there's so much that they, they covered on this, man. Okay, the history of his mask comes from the Captain Kirk. Um, You know, they painted that white and whatever else. And it was basically a Captain Kirk modified mask. And, you know, his his place in pop culture is set. You know, he's one of the top five icons and in, in, in serial killers. But, you know, we have that. Now we can go to Leatherface. Let's go to Leatherface. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. was his character profile. Let's let's do this. Leatherface is deformed without his mask you know he has a deformed face and he always makes masks out of other human faces and Gunnar Hansen who portrayed Leatherface in the original 1974 film saw Leatherface as completely under the control of his family he'll do whatever they tell him to do he's a little bit afraid of them this is partially shown in the film in a scene where Leatherface is being criticized and beaten by Drayton Sawyer who is the head of the family because of this scene, Leatherface has been described to have the role of the abused wife within the family. <laughs> Toby Hooper portrays Leatherface as a big baby who kills in self-defense because he feels threatened. In the first film, Leatherface shows fear when new people enter his home. Yeah, man. He's at his most dangerous when he's, you know when he's at his most fearful, you know, he fears everything. He's at his most dangerous, but when you talk to him, you get to relate to him. He seems like you can, you know, calm him down. It sort of reminds me of Francis Dollar Hyde. You know, when we saw the human side of Francis Dollar Hyde and Manhunter and 
you know, all it took was him getting a girlfriend. Maybe Leatherface needed that, but nobody was going to be his girlfriend. Yeah, he also, that's who uh, Ed Gain got, you know, that's who they, that's who they got their uh, ideas from was Ed Gain. Ed Gain was one sick puppy. He was Dahmer, but probably worse. This guy used to make furniture out of human anatomy. We're not going to get into that, but that's where the inspiration for Leatherface came from. And I mean, every depiction shows him, you know, being kind of fearful. You kind of feel sorry for Leatherface, but then again, you kind of can't stand Leatherface because he's just killing people that didn't do anything to him. But hey, he's an iconic killer. But I felt that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre film was very tame. Though it had great reviews, it was very tame compared to the reboot. I seen the reboot with Jessica Biel in it, and it had a little bit more gore, showed a little bit more what was going on, but I felt the original was very tame. It could have been better, but, you know, it was good enough, you know? All right. This will conclude this segment of the horror icons and what to look forward to and stuff like that. I will be back with you shortly. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. All right. This is going to be part two of this segment. We still got some more horror icons that we have to cover. And I wanted to do y'all a solid from what I did last year. Better than what I did last year. I did a podcast last year called Hard Bingers of Horror covering pretty much the same topic, but I felt it wasn't really enough, but this time, I want to make it enough. You know what I mean? I want to make it enough. So, this one, we're going to go through the horror icons of the 80s. But I, before I do that, I want to do one more from the 70s. And that is The Tall Man from Phantasm. So, without further ado, this is what I'm going to do. The Phantasm first, then we get to the horror icons of the 80s. You know... All right. So give me a second right here. Yep. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. All right. All right. This is the tall man is portrayed by Angus Scrim, a mortician 
whose real name is Jebediah Morningside. Jebediah Morningside. All right. Do we want to go through the creation or the fictional character biography? Fictional character biography it is. Originally, the tall man was a mild-mannered 19th century mortician by the name of Jebediah Morningside. After years of performing funerals and burying the bodies of those who had died, he began to develop a fascination with any possible connection between our world and the world of the dead. Jebediah's research eventually led him to construct a machine that enabled him to travel through time and space. After going through the portal for the first time, traveling to a de destination unknown, he promptly returned, irrequivocally changed and henceforth known as the tall man. All right, let's go to the characterization. The tall man appears as a tall, older, white-haired man, usually posing as a mortician. Subsequent to his transformation from Jebediah Morningside, he has only ever been seen to wear a tailored black suit, befitting his assumed profession. He seems to speak only rarely, preferring instead to rely on facial expressions, particularly the raising of one eyebrow, the latter of which in particular has become an icon of the character. Yep. Powers and weapons. The tall man has superhuman strength and has been lifting, has been seen lifting a man or even an entire occupied coffin with only one arm and little effort. He also been seen to possess telekinetic abilities, able to control both inanimate objects and people with only the use of his mind, despite his mundane outward appearance, any parts of the tall man's body that are severed or otherwise amputated from the whole, from the whole have been known to subsequently transform into hostile insect-like creatures or to bleed a yellow-colored substance, possibly his blood, but probably intended to represent embalming fluid. Yeah. And when you saw the movie, you know, he had his finger chopped off and he had this yellow goo and it was like oh and then like in the first movie uh the hero takes the souvenir of the tall man's severed finger home <laughs> to his older brother jody and you know in that box he forms into a uh, insect like creature they couldn't get rid of so <laughs> It was a that, that's a pretty crazy movie, though. I love it. He also has the ability to shapeshift into other people, including women, in order to trick potential victims. The tall man routinely surrounds himself with various accomplices, ranging from apparently willing human aides to resurrect corpses other and other demonic creatures. His main source of assistance comes from. Comes in the form of corpses that. He exhumes from the graveyard under his control. After digging up the cadavers, he crushes the bodies to the size of a dwarf, removes the brain, and reanimates the body. Despite their diminutive stature, these dwarves, known as the Lurkers, constitute the majority of the tall man's forces alongside foes wearing gas masks, also known as gravers. The tall man also utilizes metal, Flying metallic spears known as sentinels.
that concealed within the many offensive weapons, including blades, drills, lasers, and circular saws. The spears, which have come to be considered the tall man's signature weapons, contain and are apparently controlled by the shrunken brains removed from the lurkers. Later, the tall man also utilizes some kind of alien virus. When a human is infected, the victim's head will explode and the virus will spread. Though he has thus far been impossible to permanently kill, the tall man can be hurt. It has been shown on more than one occasion that he has extreme aversion to cold. Mike Pearson, another main character in the Phantasm films, says that his might, this might possibly be because the realm he comes from is very warm. He also displays a vulnerability to certain pitches of sound, which can temporarily immobilize him. On those occasions when his body has sustained mortal injury, an identical new tall man has immediately emerged from the portal, ready to continue on unfazed from where his predecessor left off. Mm, yep. The influence. The character Captain Phasma from Star Wars series was named so because, according to J.J. Abrams, the metallic appearance of Captain Phasma reminded him of the tall man's metallic spears. The popular creepypasta character Slender Man is also inspired by the tall man. Hmm. Yep, so we got the tall man out the way in the Phantasm movies. And I can tell you, this is the type of character you don't need to put a mask on or some kind of fancy outfit on. Because Angus Scrim looked like the type of guy you, you know... You would be scared to be around because when he lifted his eyebrows and his eyes and stuff like that, he looked like he was mean and evil. And all you needed to do was dress him up in a suit and a tie or regular jeans and T-shirt. He would be even more scary. So, yeah, he's one of the few icons where he can look intimidating without makeup. Rest in peace, Angus Grimm. You gave us a truly iconic character. Next up, I want to do is Jason Voorhees. Yes, Jason, my personal favorite. Let's see what we got here for Jason. I know it's plenty on Jason, and I probably won't get through it all much like I didn't for Michael Myers. So without further ado, let's break him down. Concept and creation. Do I really want to go through that? Let's see. Hmm. Yeah, it's a lot to say about this one. Oh, boy. Character and creation, design. But check this out. His mask was molded from a Detroit Red Wings goalie mask and would become a staple for the character for the rest of the franchise. He got his mask in part three from a prankster 
who should get all the credit in the world for giving Jason his iconic mask. His first kill in the mask was his crush, the the the, the guy's crush, with a harpoon through the eye. Boom. But let's. They got so much on his character design, but let's go through characteristics. But Jesus Christ, this is kind of long too. Ah, gonna try to break it down. He's a mentally unstable boy. Yep, we know about that. Since Friday the 13th, Jason Voorhees has been depicted as a nonverbal, indestructible, machete-wielding mass murderer. Jason is primarily portrayed as a as being completely silent throughout the film series. Exceptions of this can include in part three when he grunts in pain several times when the final girl, Chris, manages to stab him once in the hand and once above the knee. Yeah, he was limping and stuff like that. So it's like, oh, he does have a human aspect. And you see how human his hands look at him. You know, avoiding and stuff like that. Also, he screamed in pain in Jason Takes Manhattan where the character cries out, Mommy, please don't let me drown in a child's voice before being submerged in toxic waste. But he also was screaming in pain when the girl splashed the barrel of toxic waste in his face and he was I was like damn boy it took everything to get rid of my man Jason and it made me kind of feel sorry for him like dang it took toxic waste to take my man's now let's see we gotta break this now King Kersinger refers to him as as a psychotic mama's boy going horribly all right, very resilient. You can't kill him, but he feels pain, just not like everybody else does. Yeah. Kersinger goes on to say that Jason is a psycho savant and believes his actions are based on pleasing his mother and not anything personal. No, he doesn't know the people he kills. The only one who was, it was personal for was Alice in the first one after he severs his mother's after she chops off his mother's head you know part two was his personal mission i gotta go find her kill her boom everything will be settled but uh, i still have this urge to kill because i gotta appease moms Check this out. According to Kane Hodder, Jason might violently murder any person he comes across. But when Jason takes Manhattan call for Hodder to kick the lead dog uh, character's dog, Hodder refused, stating that while Jason has no qualms killing against uh, against killing humans, he is not bad enough to hurt animals. Another example from Jason takes Manhattan takes Manhattan involves Jason being confronted by a street gang 
of young teenage boys who a wound threatens him with a knife. However, Jason chooses not to kill them and instead scares him, scares them off by lifting his mask and showing them his face. And I was like, yep, that'll do it. Yeah. Likewise, director Tom McLaughlin chose not to have Jason harm any of the children he encounters in uh, Jason Lives, stating that Jason would not kill a child out of sympathy for the plight of children generated by his own death as a child. Yeah, that makes sense. In some ways, he would probably want to live his life as a child again and hope to transform his soul into another child. That's what that scene where, you know, He's hovering over the little girl. She's sleeping. He sees her as so innocent. And he probably says, I can transform my soul into her and I'd be a lot happier. I wouldn't kill anybody. It was kind of a creepy moment looking at that. But, you know, that's where I take from it. I don't want to take nothing perverted from it, though. You know, like he was going to molest her or something. I just take that. He wanted the, you know, saw her as sweet and innocent and said, this is the one I live my life as a child. Don't care if it's a boy or a girl. To be a child again, to be normal. He want Jason wants to feel that this yearning to be normal. I feel. And they talk about his supernatural abilities. And man, this dude has been drowned, set on fire, chopped up, and he's been everything. That dude is tough. Teenage fans can identify with the sense of rejection and isolation, which you can really, which you really can't get from other killers like Freddy Krueger and Michael Myers. I mean, I don't see how you can sympathize with Freddy Krueger. He was the worst type of person he was when he was living on Earth. We're going to get to him, too. John Rambo and Tarzan. Abominable snowman from Looney Tunes. Reception. Popularity. Let's see. Here's the deal. Jason is one of the leading cultural icons of American pop culture. Yes. You can't deny it. I ain't going to deny it. It'd be foolish to deny that. In 1992, Jason was awarded the MTV Lifetime Achievement Award. He was the first of three completely fictional characters to be represented the award, to pre be presented the award. Godzilla in 1996 and Chewbacca in 1997. So Jason was the very first out of the three. He is ranked number 26 in Wizard Magazine's 100 Greatest Villains of All Time. 100 Greatest I think they do comic book characters too, so you, you got to forgive them. So yeah, they look at all that kind of stuff. So In June 2020, Jason appears in a PSA to encourage people to wear a mask during the COVID-19 pandemic. Yep. USA Today named Jason the second most haunting horror movie villain. Second? Who's who's number one? Pazazu? I think Pazazu has him beat, but Jason is definitely number one through number three. 
I mean the guy. I mean Jason is one big marketing franchise, man. The cultural impact and um uh, shoot, man, it's so much to go over. But here's here's something. Rappers and rock musician has have made songs to him, such as Alex Cooper. He released He's Back, The Man Behind the Bass, which you can hear in Jason Part 6 in 1986 from his album, The Constrictor. The song was written to signal Jason's big return to cinema as he had been almost entirely absent in the previous film of the series. Rappers Eminem referenced Jason in several of his songs on the Marshall Mathers LP, Red Man Contain, Harry Manfredini's music, from the film series. Other rap artists that have referenced Jason include Tupac, Dr. Dre, LL Cool J, and Insane Clown Posse. In 1989, Puerto Rican rapper Vico C had a song entitled Viernes 13, which featured Jason in Puerto Rico. Okay, all right. In 1990, the 1996 Film screen directed by Elm Street creator Wes Craven, actresses Drew Barrymore character is being stalked by a killer who calls her on her phone in order to survive. She must answer the mass trivia. One question. Name the killer in Friday the 13th. She incorrectly guesses Jason, who did not become the killer for the film and series until part two. Writer Kevin Williamson claimed his inspiration for the scene came when he asked the question in a bar while a group was playing a movie trivia quiz game. He received a free drink because nobody got the answer right. <laughs> yes, they'll get it right now if they're listening to this podcast or if they watched Scream or if they watched Friday the 13th. In another Wes Craven film, Cursed, a wax sculpture figure of Jason from Jason Goes to Hill can be seen in a wax museum. In 2014, Jason made a cameo appearance in the Radio Shack Super Bowl, uh, is it 48 commercial? The 80s called. And I'm going through the motions, folks. Yeah, Jason is just, man, it's, it's, it's so much I can say about this guy. You know, he truly is one to three horror icons. To me, he is. Next up is Freddy Krueger. Yes, there's a lot to be said about him, too. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, long characterization. What inspired what? Who's inspiring who? The bladed glove, which he makes knives. He puts knives in the gloves. You can see him in the beginning of the Nightmare on Elm Street film making it. The hat, the sweater.
Okay, where do I start? Okay, here's the deal. Freddie was a child murderer, but they didn't show it. They were smart not to show his origins because you probably wouldn't be as scared of him. Nobody knew what Freddy Krueger was. He just appeared on screen to scare the living daylights out of people. But you later learned in the movie that he was a child murderer. And you didn't really see what he looked like until the sequels. You later learned that he was a child murderer. He targeted every type of kid he could find. But then when he was killed and burnt to death in the boiler room, he targeted the children of those who murdered him. And particularly Nancy. He targeted her. He's a dream demon, a fear monger. And he gets to you to your fear. Formerly human, a mass murderer of Springwood, Ohio. And he's been named. The American Film Institute ranked him 40th of its AFIs. American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. He's ranked 40th, ranked 14th in Wizard Magazine. British television channel Sky 2 lists him as 8th. And what else do we got? Freddy is just, um, you know a thought-provoking villain because when you go to sleep, you have to sleep at some point. And when you go to sleep, you want to have sweet dreams. You want to have great dreams, sweet dreams, whatever you want to call it, and have a good night's rest. But with this guy around, he feeds off your fears, gives you nightmares, make you scared to sleep. You're drinking coffee. You're looking a mess. You're looking 25 years older, all because you're scared to go to sleep. And you see that face in your sleep. That's very thought-provoking, my boy. Very, very thought-provoking. And Wes Craven was a genius. All these people who created these characters are geniuses in their own right. Don Coscarelli, William Peter Blady, Sean S. Cunningham, Wes Craven. And I want to get to the next horror icon, too. I want to get to who's next. I want to get to Pinhead of Hellraiser. Yes. Next up is Pinhead. Let's see what we got with him. He is known as the Hell Priest and Lead Cenobite. Or the priest in some drafts. Real name, Elliot Spencer. He was once human and then gotten curious. In the film franchise, Penn's Head's role has varied with each installment. 
In the script for the original film, Barker describes Pinhead and other Cenobites as demons in his notes. The character himself, however, upon capturing Kirsty Cotton, identifies himself as neither explicitly angelic nor demonic, stating that he and his fellow entourage are explorers in the further regions of experience, demons to some, angels to others. The second film expounds on the idea of the Cenobites as demons by depicting them as designants of a realm called Hell, a maze-like dimension ruled over by an entity known as the Leviathan, where they subject their quarry to emotional and psychological torture. Man, the third film, ugh, that Hell on Earth, man, they could have did better with that. You know, after part two, it was just like downhill for me. The first Hellraiser went into production during the height of the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Halloween film series. Yeah, the 80s, they dominated that. According to Clive Barker, the popularity of these films led to producers and studios not caring for his intended portrayal of Pinhead as an articulate and intelligent character. Some suggested Pinhead should act more like Freddy Krueger and crack jokes, while others suggested he be a silent killer like Jason, Voorhees, and Michael Myers. Barker insisted Pinhead's personality be more evocative of Christopher Lee's portrayal of Count Dracula. Yep. And the puzzle boxes, you know, the box is the key to all the pleasures. They are sold by people who sell them a pipe dream. origins he is a he was a british soldier during i guess world war ii he was a british exped, expeditionary force he was of the british expeditionary force suffering from ptsd and, and survivor's guilt spencer participated in the battle of passing chackendale after that, he lost faith in humanity and God. He wandered Earth, indulging in the hedonistic in a hedonistic lifestyle to bury his trauma, turning to the baser methods of gratification and pleasure until finding the Lamech configuration in British India in 1921. So he was there during the First World War, not the Second. Powers, weaknesses, and limitations, it varies. His preferred method of attack is summoning hooks and chains that mutilate victims, often tearing them apart. These chains are subject to his total mental control. His magic can be used to summon objects out of thin air and teleport cause explosions at a distance and cast illusions. Snobium. All right. Basically, Hellraiser, you know, any pleasures you have, you go to them. Any pain you have, you definitely go to them. They love turning your pleasure into pain. That's what they're for, the Cenobites. 
and they got Pinhead and female Cinnabite, the Chatterer, Butterball, and a bunch of other Cinnabites. And I can't wait to, for the reboot to see what's really going on. Because according to what I've been reading and what I've been hearing, this one-ups the originals in some ways and has more gore and best since the original, better than the original, best since part two. You know, I'm for it. So next up is Chucky. Yep, we got a Chucky season two coming up. Television series that will appear on Sci-Fi, USA Network, and streaming on Peacock. So what do we have here? When I get that... It takes me to the television series. No, 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 no. We want. All right. Charles Lee Chucky Ray. All right. We could go through his backstory, his appearances and stuff. Brad Dourif is Charles Lee Ray, the Lakeshore Strangler in Child's Play 1988. Events prior to Child's Play 1988. Charles Lee Ray was born on May 1st, 1958 in Hackensack, New Jersey to Peter and Elizabeth Ray. In a contrast to his claims that killing has been in his family for generations, as far as shown, Charles had a loving family growing up, but Unknown to his parents, he suffered from a severe case of sadistic and homicidal urges. When Charles was seven years old, after he returned home from trick-or-treating during Halloween, he checked all his candy until he decided to pick up an apple that he received and noticed a razor blade stuck in it. He bit into it regardless. He smiled after the razor blade cut his mouth, causing him causing it to bleed. Wow, that's just crazy. During one of his birthday parties, Chucky used a mallet to knock the pinata to the ground, but continued aggressively to smash it even after it had fallen. He then overheard the news that Hack the Hackensack Slasher, a serial killer, was on the loose on the radio and delighted in plunging a knife into his birthday cake. In 1965... When Charles was seven years old, the Hackensack slasher broke into his home and killed his father right in front of him. His mother attempted to hide him in the closet with him. However, when the Hackensack slasher found him, he was surprised to see that Charles had stabbed his mother to death, claiming to have helped. Impressed by the boy's actions, the Hackensack slasher gave him advice that he should always cover his tracks and wipe the blood off his pocket knife before handing it back to him. After his parents' death, Charles was placed in the Burlington County home for wayward boys. In 1972, when Charles was 14, he was known for playing with smaller the smaller children. One day after tracking the mud through the hallway, he was yelled at by the janitor. He killed him by slitting his throat and cut off his hand and presented his mutilated body as Captain Hook to a group of children while they 
imitated Peter Pan and the Lost Boys, leaving all of them horrified, with the exception of a young boy named Eddie Caputo, who would become his future accomplice. When the police came, Charles decided to run away, leaving the janitor's severed hand behind as a gift for Eddie before fleeing into the night. At some point during the 1980s, Charles picked up a woman named Delilah and a redheaded woman from a nightclub, then brought them back to a hotel. The two women engaged in foreplay with Charles, interrupting them by pulling the redheaded woman aside and holding a knife over her. To his surprise, instead of being afraid of the woman, being afraid, the woman instructed him to go through with it. Ray then chose to kill Delilah instead, stabbing her and passing the knife to the redhead to join in. After killing her together, the couple kissed passionately and on the bed, the redhead told Charles her name is Tiffany before suggesting Charles should be Chucky. And he in turn suggested she should be blonde. Chucky and Tiffany left Hackensack in 1987 after killing a man that was attempting to sell a car in which they proceed to drive out of town. All this was in season one last year. Most of this was in season one last year. By 1988, Chucky, along with Tiffany, had relocated to Chicago, Illinois. During his time in Chicago, Chucky studied voodoo under the guidance of a practitioner named John Bishop, the guy he kills with his own voodoo doll in the first one, <laughs> learning to cheat death and all that other stuff. Then Chucky targets a pregnant woman in her family, becomes obsessed with her, a girl named Sarah Pierce, who would later come back to try to kill Nika Pierce, who is paralyzed from the waist down. Not long after a chase ensued between Chucky and Mike, Detective Mike Norris, who guns him down and forces him to become Chucky the Possessed Doll. I mean, we could go through the characterizations and stuff like that. But where is Chucky's reception? Come on now. Yeah, I can't wait for season two to come out Wednesday. October 5th. This Wednesday, October 5th, October 5th, 9 o'clock, I believe, Eastern Time. Western Time, you know what that is, 6 o'clock. Central Time, that's 8 o'clock. Mountain Time, that's 7 o'clock. Eastern Time, 9. Next up, we have Candyman. Candyman, Candyman. I mean, it was, you know, he was a slave or a former slave that used to, was it, hold up, did he paint? Was he a painter?
I'm trying to look for something here. He was an African-American man who was brutally murdered for a forbidden 19th century interracial love affair. He returns as a as a urban legend and kills anyone who summons him by saying his name five times in front of a mirror. What do you know? I mean, I'm right in front of a mirror, too. I said his name, what, twice? Development legacy. I mean, yeah, man, there was a guy in a neighborhood in my hometown that used to walk around with a Candyman hook. And he was doing this before Candyman came out, that we knew about Candyman. Candyman came out in 1992. This guy used to walk around the neighborhood since probably the 70s or the 80s. And I think this guy used to be a Vietnam vet. So at least in the 70s and the 80s, he was running around scaring children and stuff or being scared of children. But by all means... He was a pretty nice guy when you got to know him, but man, that Candyman hook has brought back memories for kids who watch Candyman. Next up is this Ghostface Killer, the Scream Killer. Now, Ghostface Killer can be anybody, but you have to be a really smart and cunning character to be Ghostface. And you find out Ghostface is anybody. And don't look at it who 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 portrays Ghostface in these movies. Just uh you know, just look at it as why they're doing it. But Sidney Prescott is the main target, like always. Let's see. This is cultural impact. Now, the rumor was when Scream came out that, um, and I may have said this last year, that, um, Call ID sales went through the roof. Somebody calls your house in a voice. And they say, what's your favorite scary movie? Or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that to you. And it made people say, I got calls like that. I'm getting caller ID. That's, you know, that's all you need to know. Ghostface is never referred to by its name until Scream 4, simply called the killer and father death in the original Scream, while being credited as the voice in the credits. The real the name originates from character Tatum Riley, played by Rose McGowan, who called who called a disguised Billy Loomis Mr. Ghostface in the first movie prior to her death. Yeah, man, I remember I, 
I had um I had to pass the costume on to one of my nephews and stuff for Halloween and stuff. But I dressed as the Ghostface Killer once, a couple of times actually. But to describe the character, the character is just mentally disturbed and bent on killing. But each Ghostface character has its own motives. You know what I'm saying? Each one has its own motives. Who's the next one? Okay, what's the next one? Oh. I know I'm forgetting somebody. Hannibal Lecter. He likes to eat people. Fictionalized version of Jeffrey Dahmer. But Lecter goes about eating people in a different method. He ain't gonna chop somebody up and, and, and use in his own apartment where people can hear him smell the dead bodies. No, he does that in a more private place where nobody's around. Silence of the Lambs. Any other icons am I forgetting? I might be forgetting somebody. I think I had him on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, I can't think of anybody, man. I'm... You know, I think I went through them all, all the the, the icon, all these icons. I, I went through them all. I think I have, and you know, any with one time appearances. You know, I'm sorry I forgot, but you know, this October, in conclusion to this, is this is this year October of 2022. Horror fans, you have cause to rejoice. Whether these movies or television shows are good or bad, you know, you should be grateful. Like I said, let's recap. We have Interview with the Vampire coming out tomorrow on AMC television show. And they already greenlit a season two. That means they love it so much. They greenlit a season two a couple of days before the premiere of the show. We have a Chucky season two coming out on Wednesday, like I said. And who knows, they might greenlit a season three and we don't even know it. Then we have the Hellraiser reboot dropping on Hulu on Friday. Be sure to check that out. And then we have Halloween Ends coming out Friday, October 14th or October 13th on a Thursday. You know, the Thursday night showings and stuff like that. And it is doing same day streaming previews. I mean, same day streaming on Peacock. The same day on the 14th, so check those out. And like I said, uh, since they're streaming the same day, it'll be fair game on pirate sites. So check those out. Again, this, you know, just check those out. If you're a horror fan, you know, you should have an action-packed good time. Get your snacks, your trees, your drinks. Sit back, relax, take it to the max, and enjoy. All right, this concludes this segment of the Mad Nucleus Podcast. And until next time, I'll see you then. Peace and love, everybody.